Welcome to Building Safe Workplaces. Casual talk about serious matters. I'm your host, Tommy Nitt with Hask. Today we're going to hear our May 27th webinar focusing on COVID-19's impact on our restaurant industry. Stay safe. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to all of our attendees that have, have joined us today. We're very happy to have everybody on this webinar today. This webinar is titled Reopening Texas, Return to Work the Right Way, and it's part of a series of webinars that the Houston Area Safety Council and the University of Texas School of Public Health have put together. I think this is our second one so far in this series, and today we're going to be talking about the restaurant industry and how that has become affected because of the COVID-19 virus and what measures the restaurants are putting into place to make sure not only that their own employees are, are healthy and safe, but also all of us, uh, uh, good customers that want to go into these uh, establishments, can go into the establishments and know that we are protected, we are say, staying safe and, and healthy. So very excited to offer this webinar today. I'm excited to, to learn more about the restaurant industry and hear from our, our uh, panel of experts here. So throughout our webinar, all of the attendees, you guys are all on kind of silent mode, right? So we cannot hear you if you say something. So what we want you to do is type in to your question box as many questions as you would like answered today by our, by our group of uh, expert panelists today. So feel free, starting now to the end of the, the session, type in as many questions as you, was, as you would like to have answered. If you've got a comment that you wanna offer, please put in that comment. And what I will do throughout the webinar is go through these questions in real time and try to uh, answer as many of them as we can. I know a question always pops up, uh, in that are the attendees going to have access to these slides and these questions? Absolutely. We're going to make sure that everybody gets a copy of this. We are going to post a, a full recorded version of this webinar online and email it out to all of the attendees. So you will have the full recorded webinar today. You will also have the slide deck and, and feel free to ask any follow-up questions after the webinar is, is finished. But please, we do not want this to be a lecture. Uh, we're just going to highlight a few slides in the beginning and then open it up for as many questions as you can throw at us. So feel free to start typing those questions now. Uh, so the two uh, entities that are putting this on today are the Houston Area Safety Council and the University of Texas School of Public Health. Uh, and, you know, both missions, as you can see from our slide here, are to build safe workplaces, change the culture of health, you know, doing what we can to make sure that everybody in the community is safe. So it was the natural collaboration with these two entities to come together and offer as much guidance and recommendations and expertise as, as we possibly can. And we have a tremendous panel today to, to hopefully help provide some of that to you. This is the, uh, the Houston Area Safety Council's Platinum par Partners and Sponsors. We certainly cannot do these webinars and, and, and some of these endeavors that we provide without our sponsors. So uh, we thank all of our sponsors that have, have helped uh, provide some resources so we can continue to build those safe workplaces and change that culture of health. So today, a quick agenda. Uh, you know, the, the governor of Texas, Governor Abbott, has rolled out an executive order, several executive orders, on how to reopen Texas safely. So uh, we're going to highlight a few of those. 
Uh, going to give you a, a current snapshot of how Texas is looking as a whole, uh, how Harris County is looking as a whole. Uh, go through some of the correct terminology of what you may hear on the news but don't really understand. Uh, give you some methods and guidance of how to reduce the risk in your workplace and specifically today in the restaurant industry. Give you some resources that you can reference on your own should you have some follow-up questions. But more importantly, provide that Q&A uh, opportunity for you to write in and ask some questions. And we already have some questions coming in, so that's great. Here's our list of, of panelists today. You can see that we have a lot of uh, doctors on this, on this panelist, a lot of MDs, several PhDs, and several experts from the, uh, two experts from the retail sector. So you've got a, a great list of, of experts on this, on this panel today. Mm -hmm. If we don't know the answer, I assure you, we can guide you in the right direction of where you can get that question answered. So welcome to all of our panelists and we'll introduce them as we go along. Uh, George, Dr. Del Close, you wanna kick us off? Um, sure, but before I start, I, I, I did wanna uh, introduce uh, our guest from the restaurant industry, not retail, Tommy. Um, <laughs> that was last week. Um, uh, uh, Kelsey Erickson Stroyford uh, joined the Re Texas Restaurant Association as Vice President of Government Relations and Advocacy a little over a month ago, right in the middle of the pandemic. But she jumped uh, right in by leading the development of what's called the Texas Restaurant Promise, which you'll be hearing more about today, along with the Texas Restaurant Survival Plan and various pieces of the Texas Restaurant Association's internal and external communications. Before joining TRA, she was general counsel for uh, Texas Senator Kirk Watson uh, out of uh, Austin. She's a WT Longhorn, go Longhorns, earn, earning both her law degree and uh, passing the Texas bar in 2016. Our other uh, industry panelist is Sharag uh, Bhatt, who's been involved in food safety uh, for over 40 years. After working with local regulatory agencies, specifically the city of Houston for more than 26 years, Sharag worked with a custom software uh, company as vice president for food safety and client consulting for a, a few years before joining a large restaurant company called Bloomin' Brands as their global regulatory compliance manager. He also worked with a major distribution company, Cisco, as regulatory and technical services director. And most recently, he worked with a retail company, Bucky's, which I think we all know from when we used to travel on the road anyway, uh, as a director of food safety in QA for two years and now owns his own uh, food safety consulting company. He has a BS in biology and uh, chemistry and has served as chair for the National Restaurant Association's Quality Assurance Executive Study Group for three years. He currently serves as an education advisory board with the Food Safety Summit and is an advisory council member with Sandy Professional. So welcome to both Shirag and Kelsey. I'm sure many of the questions will be uh, addressed to you. Um, and looking forward to our, as, as Tommy called it, it, it really is a conversation and uh, I hope everybody enjoys it. So before um, we get into the q and I did want to talk a little bit, uh, Tommy, if you can uh, move to the next slide, about some numbers. Uh, you know, when Governor Abbott uh, published uh, or, or, you know, signed his uh, executive orders, one of the important tenets of those orders is that the changes of the phased approach to reopening would be guided by data by what the pandemic was doing in Texas and that implicitly uh, acknowledges that it, you know the, the, that may allow us to move the phases forward steadily or sometimes we might have to hit the pause button or hopefully not but maybe 
something happens that might require maybe taking a step back and, and rethinking. The main uh, data points that the governor is using uh, is what's called the positive uh, test rate and also hospitalizations. Uh, and then there are some other indicators um, that are also useful to know. So what we see on this slide here is what's called the seven-day rolling average of daily new cases. Uh, this is the number of cases throughout the state of Texas. And you'll see that uh, it's got some humps in it. So uh, early on, the very first hump around um, the, uh, the near the middle of April, um, that's, that was when the first peak was hit. And um, at about the end of March is when many of the stay-at-home orders had started. So if you look two weeks beyond that peak, you'll see that the, it was starting to decline again. And then towards the end of April, beginning of May, which coincided, uh, well, actually it preceded uh, really rolling out uh, some of the governor's uh, reopening uh, phases, it starts to go back up again. And then in this most recent, uh, and we hit a peak uh, actually last, uh, last week um, of around 12, well, uh, nearly 1,300 new cases a day, and then it's dropped off since then. I expect this pattern to continue. If you think about it, the Memorial Day weekend, you know, we have to wait about two weeks before we see the impact of that, and we'll see how that affected these numbers. But this is for Texas. But Texas just gives us a global picture of the, of the state. The state is very heterogeneous. Next slide. Tommy, can you hit the next slide? Can anybody hit the next slide? Uh, uh, let's see. Jordan. All righty. So uh, let's see. Tommy, are you there or did you get disconnected? Okay, there we go. So. I said that, that that number that I just showed you is for Texas as a whole, but Texas is very heterogeneous, as can be seen on this map from the Johns Hopkins University website, which I think many of us have become familiar with. You'll see that Texas has a bunch of different colors. The darker colors may reflect or do reflect where cases are greatest, especially <clears throat> the rate of cases, not the number, but the rate of cases. And then there are areas that are very light in color where there are fewer cases. And that's a very important consideration for employers to take into account when taking what is a state order and trying to figure out how to apply it to their local situation. You need to have a feel for what's going on in your locality. Next slide, please. Okay, so as an example, and uh, I'm based in Houston, but I mean, I could be showing slides from any other city in Texas. This is what the seven day rolling average of, of cases for Houston was. And you see that it follows a somewhat similar pattern to Texas overall but with a less attenuated increase uh, in the latter part in, in, in May. Remember in Texas, May, the May uh, mid-May was higher than the first uh, hump, and in Texas it's the other way around. In fact, I mean in Houston it's the other way around. In fact, we're relatively flat to starting to decline, it, it appears in Houston. These are new cases per day. Next slide. And uh, hospitalizations are important. Hospitalizations is one of the parameters that Governor Abbott is looking at. And basically, just to keep a long story short, it looks like uh, after some uh, initial fits and starts more recently, although there is some variation, it's, it's leveled off. It's re relatively, it's plateaued. Now for the state, the hospitalization rate, that means 
of all of the positive COVID cases, how many are winding up hospitalized and in ICUs? It's around 4.7%, which is very low. Uh, so that's a good sign. Likewise, the death rate, the fatality rate in, in Texas, even though we have lots of cases, we are nearing uh, you know several tens of thousands right now, our mortality rate is, un, is at around 2%, a little over 2% for the state, which is incredibly low, with some places like Houston being below 2%. So that's the importance of keeping things local. Next slide. In fact, in the Texas Medical Center, we uh, have several metrics that we monitor, and um, you can look and read them for yourselves, but the important thing is what where it says current status, you see that there are green and yellow and thankfully no red buttons. These are this is what we monitor on a daily basis. This is this has to do with hospital capacity. Do we have enough ICU beds? Do we have enough ventilators? Do we have enough prote personal protective equipment for our workers? And as long as everything is green, that's okay. When something pops up yellow, like we've seen in the last three days, that there's been a slight increase in local cases uh, that occupy ICU beds, then you know our antennas go up and we start thinking about Let's watch this a little bit more closely and see if we have to make any changes. So we, we look at the Texas numbers, uh, and but we act locally. And I think that's a good principle for employers to take into account as well. Next slide. So I'm going to um, shift gears now and um, talk about uh, something that is free. It's available to everyone. And as uh, Tommy was saying, we will uh, make the slides available to you. But this this app might be of interest to employers. So one of the ways of keeping tabs on what is going on locally is um, uh, we are asking, and, and, and this is actually a project that originated at Harvard University, and we are applying it to Texas, our colleagues here at the School of Public Health. It's a, a simple ad that just asks anybody, any citizen, to track their symptoms on a daily basis. It's what's called... Uh, syndromic surveillance. Uh, you, you follow symptoms instead of test results, which are also important. And here's where you can uh, uh, download it. It takes very little time to complete. Uh, it, you are asked to provide consent for it. It is totally confidential. And um, the results come back to our School of Public Health, where any, uh, any possible identifiers are stripped, and we analyze the data for the state of Texas. Now, how can that help employers? Next slide. It actually can uh, it can uh, uh, help a lot of folks, even families. They use their app daily. That, that that's reassurance as long as they don't have symptoms that they are well. Um, we know that uh, in localities by zip code or counties or cities, if we start to see a clustering of people reporting symptoms, that should raise some flags uh, for action. And that's exactly how it might be of benefit to employers. We will analyze the data for you for free, and we can. Um, uh, there will come a, a point where we can uh, actually provide it to you by zip code uh, or by county where you are. And you know, an employer might have the question, "Well, you know, what's going on in my in my locale? Is there are, are there hot, is it turning into a hotspot? And if so, should I make some changes?" So we we we're doing this to make um, to supply you with yet one more useful source of information, and we'd encourage everybody to uh, to use it. And all the information about how to download it and who to contact for more information will be provided on the slides. Thank you very much. Thank you, George. I apologize for the slide situation. My I think my system just kind of froze on me there for a while. So let's go on to the next slide here. 
Dr. Rios, welcome. Hi, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, my name is Janelle Rios and I'm a faculty associate at the UT Health School of Public Health. And I'm gonna briefly share with you a well-known, often used public health tool that serves as the foundation for controlling hazards in the workplace. Um, and I've been given two minutes to do this. This is a semester long class. I'm gonna give you in two minutes. Um, and it's called the hierarchy of controls. And hierarchy refers to the level of effectiveness of that particular control. So the triangle, the upside down triangle that you see on the right, that is the hierarchy of controls. And at the very top, you see elimination. Um, that is the most effective control. If you can eliminate the hazard, that is the most effective. And down at the bottom at the point, you see PPE or personal protective equipment, and that's the least effective. Let me repeat that. That's the least effective control measure uh, for controlling hazards in the workplace. Um, and here on the left side of the slide, I've uh, put in a few notes um, for each of these different levels of control. Um, elimination, uh, I wanna highlight that self-screening starts at home and eliminate the hazard from coming into the workplace altogether. So I encourage you to, have, to train your employees to monitor their own symptoms. And if they are feeling ill, if they have a fever, if they're coughing, if they're short of breath, and some of the other symptoms that you'll hear about, um, they shouldn't come into work. Instead, they need to call you and let you know that they're feeling these symptoms. Um, encourage your employees, uh, as well as uh, your patrons, to wear facial coverings. Um, and I have a, a cloth covering here uh, that I use. This is a, a size small. It's a little bit little, too small for me, but um, it's, it's very helpful in trapping um, the organisms inside of the mask rather than spreading them out into the environment. Um, I'd also like to highlight uh, the use of cleaners and disinfectants in the elimination section. Um, when you use cleaners and disinfectants, use EPA registered chemicals and use them in accordance with the manufacturer's instructions because that's critically important. In the engineering control section, I'd like to highlight the use of markings and signage to keep patrons and employees um, separated by about six feet, if not more. Now, I understand the kitchen environment is probably a very difficult environment in which to um, keep employees from being very close together. So you might consider um, other uh, barriers, if at all possible. And again, remember uh, the cloth um, facial coverings is very helpful there. Um, under administrative controls, uh, I'd like to highlight uh, relaxing sick leave policies so that when so employees don't feel obligated to come into work if they're feeling ill. Um, you don't want uh, ill employees coming into the workplace and, and spreading disease. At this time, that's critically important. Um, also consider staggering shifts and working in teams um, so that the same people work together um, for each shift. That way, if one person gets sick, maybe that team goes down, but not all teams are going to be impacted. Um, and critically important is training. How, how do I put one of these on? How do I take it off without contaminating myself? How do I properly put on and take off gloves so that I don't contaminate myself? How do I properly wash my hands? For that matter, is there soap um, and hand sanitizer available in hot water? 
Um, so those are administrative controls and uh, personal protective equipment. Make sure that gloves, facial coverings, um, other items that are needed are available to employees, um, as well as how to use them, reuse them if necessary, uh, especially things that are meant to be reused uh, rather than um, paper masks, um, and then how to dispose of those items. So I think that that is barely my two minutes. Um, I welcome any questions at the end. Thank you very much. Dr. Rios, there is a question that was written in on this on this chart, uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and ask it to you and ask the group as well. And the question was, can you give an example of uh, substituting the hazard? And maybe not so much in COVID-19, but maybe in general, what's the substitution for the hazard? Sure, sure. Thank you for that question. Um, in, in this particular case, we can't substitute um, because that's it would be substituting the virus. Um, so when you look at the hierarchy of controls, it's uh, looking at what that hazard actually is. In this case, that hazard is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, so we don't substitute another virus for it. But in other uh, settings, for example, um, substituting the hazard could be substituting a very um, uh, hard, harsh chemical, maybe something that is very acidic or very basic with one that is less um, harsh on the environment or on human health, um, particularly in places that are manufacturing kind of settings. And that would include food manufacturing as well. Um, is there another good example, Bob, can you think of for substitution? I didn't want to use a biological agent because um, uh, that'd be very I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it's, um, I, mean, I think this, this hierarchy is reasonable, but with regard to a pandemic, perhaps some of the elements are not correctly applicable. But uh, no, I, th I think you're, you're right on point. Okay. One of our one of our colleagues typed in Dr. Liu and suggested, would a vaccine be a substitution for this virus? It, it, it really that is um, an elimination control um, rather than a substitution. And and I don't want folks to get hung up exactly um, in these categories. But as as uh, restaurant owners, uh, restaurant employees are looking at the different hazards that are in their restaurants um, go from the top to the bottom on this hierarchy. Um, right. So don't don't worry so much about finding a substitution. Um, look at it from elimination and then engineering and then administration um, as best you can, because that's really the uh, order of effectiveness of the control. Um, but yeah, the vaccine would be elimination because then it would be eliminated from entering the workplace altogether. All right, perfect, thank you. Thank you. All right, who's up next? It is me, I'm Christy Mena. I'm the Dean of the El Paso campus of UT Health School of Public Health. Just mentioned a couple of factors that actually just springboard off of what Dr. Rios just described. As we think about restaurants and other businesses reopening, it's important to remember that a multifaceted approach to best protection practices um, should be undertaken. So keep in mind that you know we do know that the virus is more likely spread from person to person, but we also 
know that the environment may play a role as studies of other respiratory viruses of similar structure have shown. It's also important to understand in that approach why certain practices, such as face coverings, for example, are used so they can be properly employed in the workplace setting, such as restaurants, as well as what Dr. Rios mentioned, the, the proper use of disinfectants of surrounding surfaces, such as contact time and frequency. And another example would be room ventilation practices. And then finally, as restaurant safeguards are developed and implemented, it's really important to keep in mind the role and possible impact of the customer, the restaurant as to either may not be aware of those safeguards or may not choose to follow them. And that could cause a disruption in an otherwise thoroughly designed plan. Thank you, Christy. Okay, I'm up next. So, hey, I'm Bob Emery here in Houston and uh, just wanna cover uh, four key points, but more importantly, welcome your questions as we go forward. First of all, I'd like to thank all of you for the important work you do. Um, that you guys are on the front line of this stuff and you've really taken kicks in the shins on this stuff. And, and I, um, I, I applaud all of your work and, and uh, I look forward to eating out. <laughs> so, um, so my four points, number one is, uh, unfortunately, in all of the media conversations about this virus, the term novel has been dropped from its communication. And I would argue that's really important because the term novel means new. And so we need to all understand and set the expectation that there are some things we know about the virus, but there's other things that are not known. So I think we need to set the expectation for all parties involved that things may change as we move down the road here, right? So there are things we know and there are controls we can put in place that are effective. It's similar to what Dr. Rios was describing. Those things are tried and true. We know that, but, un but expect that there could be some twists and turns as, as we move forward. One of the things I would, suggest that all of you track is what's called in epidemiology the r naught value and that is the um it, within public health world that that's something that tracks if you have a confirmed case how many additional cases would you expect to get and the current estimate for this virus is 2.2 uh to put that in perspective and i'll defer to dr douglas on this but i think seasonal influenza is down around one or 1.5 is that correct yeah uh, and then uh but you take something like measles the r naught value is up to like 15 right so so you're going to hear a lot in the news about uh contact investigators and it, it's really focusing on this issue so i would encourage you to track what r naught is um number two um we got a lot of questions about screening, but I would encourage you to think about the notion that screening begins at home. And what I mean by that is the employers talking to the employees and screening out some of these issues prior to arrival to the workplace. And I suspect there's gonna be a lot of questions about taking temperatures and that sort of thing, but, but that screening piece 
that educational piece that Dr. Rios referred to needs to occur on that front end. Um, and then uh, number three, the, the masking issue. We uh, People, I think, are very confused about what, what the masking does. And so just so we're clear, the face coverings, whether it's a scarf or whether it's a, uh, which, a surgical mask, um, those are intended to keep you from inadvertently infecting someone else. Um, and th that's, that's important uh, because one can have this disease and not exhibit symptoms. So that's why there's been a lot of um, emphasis on the notion of barriers to transmission. In other words, if people mask while they're in public, then they might not inadvertently affect someone else. On the other side of the coin is protection for the wearer. And this you heard, you've heard this term a lot, personal protective equipment. So things such as N95s, P100s, PAPRs, and I can go into gory detail if people have questions about it, but anyhow, those are designed for the, the, the individual to protect themselves. So think of this in two ways. One set of masking, that's why I use that term masking, there's one set of face coverings that are designed to serve as a barrier from you inadvertently transmitting to someone else. And then there's a whole other subset of masking that is intended to protect the wearer. Uh, and then last but not least, um, the, the issue of a, a thing that we need to track very closely is um, what I would argue, uh, environmental persistence. How long can this virus persist on a surface, a table, dishes, wh whatever you have. Um, and the notion of using, ensuring, and this is what I really want to underscore, is that, um, that organizations ensure that the cleaning and disinfection materials that they're using are EP registered disinfectants. And if they're delivered in bulk, um, make sure that they're being mixed in the right um, uh, proportions and that the uh, appropriate uh, contact time is being used. Those are all really critical uh, features with regard to cleaning and disinfectant. It, it, so I just rounded it off here to say 72 hours for stainless steel and plastic, but we, we have accelerated, I'll just tell you here at the university, we've accelerated routine housekeeping, but the notion of spraying down high touch services such as doorknobs or, you know, whatever. Um, but, but the notion of the contact time is not being adhered to in my opinion. So I just would encourage you to, to think about that and I'll, we can try to answer any questions we have. So the, the next slide is just a series of references. If each of you want to provide a book report on this uh, by all means, I'll, um, I'll grade you on handwriting and <laughs> so thanks Bob we'll make sure we get everybody has these uh, these references okay information some more resources there and I think is this one of Dave's slides yeah this is Dave uh, I'm on faculty over here at the uh, UTL School of Public Health in San Antonio and um, I, uh, my background is in 
ergonomics and safety. And so I, I kind of approach things from a process flow perspective, uh, logistics. And yeah, we did uh, our bunker this past weekend and I did enter some restaurants down in Corpus Christi. And I was impressed by some of the uh, efforts and initiatives that they did down there uh, in those restaurants. And so I just wanted to bring to your attention some of the uh, resources that are out there for the restaurant industry um, it, from a from a national perspective, uh, the CDC and OSHA have many uh, resources out there down to the Texas Department of State Health Services and the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the national restaurant is, as well as our Texas restaurant associations uh, have provided uh, some very good resources. And I would like to draw your attention to the American Industrial Hygiene Association and their website, and they have some very rich, very well um, uh, prepared documents out there for industry specific um, guidelines and resources uh, for reopening of business. And I would just like to draw your attention to those as well. Thank you, Dave. Excellent. All right, and that's the end of our slide portion of this. So I do want to go back. There was a question when Dr. Emery was on this slide. Go back. And I, I the the uh, the question was, what does he mean by contact time? I guess you said that somewhere in here. Yes. Uh, what, what right. Do you mean so, by right. So if if um, first of all, let's circle back. Uh, if you go to the EPA website, it's it's a now they've made a, a pretty slick little tool. The, the the buzz term you want to put in is EPA registered disinfectants, right? And then you'll find and they'll come up with a table of these commercial products. But but along with that, it will say what is the required contact time for it to be effective to render the virus inactive uh, and that varies and uh i'll defer to dr delclos and dr no, actually dr mina is probably a better person to defer to on this but that ranges from perhaps two to maybe 10 minutes so it, christy are you square on that yes yeah. yes yeah, yeah it, so it depends kind of on the like, organism itself and the survivability and all the other kinds of environmental factors that can play into it but right right but but i guess i i guess what i'm i guess what i'm trying to get to is that um the mirror just spraying on a doorknob and then immediately wiping it off it, it can be ineffective with regard to uh as as the product was tested, would you agree with that? Right. Yes. Okay. And, yes. And customers and users, we are able to look up different products, different manufacturers, and they'll have those, as you mentioned already, those contact times listed for certain products. Right. So so if, if go back for a second, and and I defer to our colleagues here on the uh, that have been involved in food safety here, but I suspect that many of these cleaning or disinfectant products come in in a concentrated form and then are diluted or mixed um, locally i suspect i don't know but that's really that's an important feature to make sure that that's being done properly number one and then number two is 
that the contact feature is also being adhered to. So, Shrak, um, would you agree with that? Or? Yeah, absolutely. That is uh, very true. And as Christina said, that uh, the surface, the the pathogen that you're trying to destroy or eliminate. Mm -hmm. So there are so many variable factor and the fomite, you know, what type of surface it is and how long does it need to be exposed. So yeah, absolutely. Those are very critical. And that's why the instructions are on the chemical that you purchase. So, so if I may, I, I, I think a very practical question would be um, if, if a patron comes into a restaurant and they're they enjoy their meal and then they leave and then a table is cleaned and you know they have the condiments and whatever things uh, but as part of that I don't know the term you use but the turnover until the you know when the next patron comes in that notion of ensuring the contact time is important would you would you agree with that absolutely yes no okay right no. And I think that's why, Bob, uh, some of these uh, restaurants are now making sure that in order for you to come in and dine in, that you make a reservation instead of just showing up. So therefore, they can have that enough time in between the table set. Right. And, and so the patrons are not clogging up in the waiting area as well, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Right. True. Right. And, all, and also then considering the... Um, the high touch services, such as those condiment containers, which some of us don't touch anyways, because they're not always wiped down even between, you know, a busy, a busy um, time for a restaurant. In non-pandemic, quote unquote, more normal times, I think practices should be able to ensure that some of the more hardy organisms we worry about in restaurant settings are taken care of. But during this particular situation, we do need to think about those high-touch services um, since we're, you know, we're vulnerable right now. Yeah, those are. I would add there that uh, condiments right now really should not be, shouldn't be left on tables. We're asking that nothing be left on tables. Um, condiments should only be provided in single-use um, portions when requested. So again, just kind of goes back to that hierarchy, right? Eliminating um, some of those risks altogether. And then the things that you can't eliminate, like doorknobs, right? We've got to be able to get in and out of buildings. Um, making sure they are being disinfected regularly. And, and as Bob said, following all of the, the instructions for the specific cleaner. Because it varies. Um, and I'm, I'm not an expert in this field, but Christy, help me, but um, you know, the, the go back to this issue of contact time. Some some uh, disinfectants, the contact time is quite short, whereas others are quite long. But at least when I, uh, and I know enough to be dangerous in this regard, but I, I it's um, perhaps two to ten minutes. Is that correct? Excellent input from everybody. You know, and I, I think it's important too for as the consumer to be aware of how much is going into these restaurants, being able to open and being able to maintain uh, all of these safe practices. You know, it's easy to walk into a restaurant and and be seated and then decide, yeah, I really don't like this table. I want to go sit on a round table instead of a square table. And and I I, I realized very quickly over the past couple of days 
that's difficult in this for that restaurant in this time. They they want to do everything they can to accommodate you as the customer, but they may not have a square table clean right now, or it may not be six feet apart from the next table, and uh, and it can be a very stressful situation on on both ends. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're asking everyone to show each other grace in this time is sort of what we keep saying, right? <laughs> show people patience. As Bob said, this is a this is a novel virus. So we are all learning and improving as we go. No one is going to do it perfectly the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and so just kind of bearing with each other and giving each other the benefit of the doubt um, that we're doing the best we can is, is really helpful in communicating. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to jump into one of the, the hot topic uh, questions up front so we can make sure we have plenty of time to answer it. Um, do you recommend that restaurants take guest temperature at the door before they enter the restaurant? So that I can be I'll let you. Yeah, I'll, I'll start on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we have not made that recommendation. We know that some restaurants are doing that and we fully support that. Um, but we would also caution any restaurant that's doing that to make sure of a couple things. One, they're doing it safely. Um, contactless thermometers are best because then you're not, um, you know, potentially spreading um, the virus from person to person. Or if you don't have contactless, then making sure that it's being disinfected properly every time. Um, if you're keeping that information, which I would caution against, um, definitely need to make sure you're aware of um, uh, privacy and, and protected health information regulations. Um, and then you need to make sure you have a really specific and strong policy in place about what you do with that information, right? What is the cutoff at which people are not allowed to enter? Um, you know, just all of the contingencies that can come up, right? Because we know there's a million ways that that this can be worked out. Um, what we have recommended is in keeping with CDC guidance, the governor's protocols, um, and that's that every person, customer, employee, contractor, anyone, uh, perform a self-screening at home that includes uh, temperature evaluation and also considers all of the other risk factors with COVID. And if you've been in close contact with someone with COVID, I think sometimes we get a little hung up on pieces of data like temperature, which is of course an important indicator, but there are many people who have had this virus and either not known it at all or didn't exhibit symptoms. So we really need to do that comprehensive Kind of risk assessment at home before you even show up to any business, a restaurant or, or otherwise. And I think, Elsie, just like you say, the, many of the restaurants would probably choose to have a screening test questionnaire, if you will. So yes. as a guest comes in and they may ask some simple questions. So it, like you say, in addition to the fever or the high, high temperature, there are some other symptoms that people are not very familiar with that. So in addition to that, I think my, my suggestion to the restaurant operator would be to share your protocols, your policies, your screening test questions, if you will, with, yeah. with your guests. As they make reservation, direct them to a website, share it on your social media, send an email out to all your customers, and therefore they know that these are the questions that may be asked when you show up at the restaurant. 
Yeah, I'm so glad Shrag mentioned that. Um, and let me back up a little bit and just mention that the Texas Restaurant Association created the Texas Restaurant Promise uh, before restaurants were even allowed to reopen. And basically with that process, we talked to restaurants of all shapes and sizes. Um, we spoke to FDA and CDC experts from across the nation and really pulled together a list of protocols both for restaurants to follow and for customers to follow. Because again, the sort of clear communication and setting expectations up front is so important. One, so that we're all doing the right thing, but two, so that there's clear communication and you don't have um, those situations where a customer becomes upset and is mad or frustrated or doesn't understand why they're being asked certain things. So part of the Texas Restaurant Promise is we literally created a one-page flyer that we're asking all restaurants to post on their at their entrances. And it does include um, promises, again, that the restaurant makes and that the customer makes. One of the customer promises is that they will not enter and use contactless options if they have uh, symptoms of COVID, including a fever. So getting that information up front, um, ideally, as Shrog said, before they even show up to the restaurant, but certainly before they enter um, is, is really important. And uh, to follow up on that, what about the recommendation for masks on, on uh, guests? My, my recommendation on the guests coming in wearing a mask would be, as they walk in, you can require them to have a mask on. But once they're sitting down on a table and they start consuming food and or beverages, they'll have to take it off. So it's very prudent for the restaurant operator or the bar operator, whatever the case may be, to have their employees, their team members wear one. Because at least that way you can creating at least one barrier, right? And the guest as he is or she is sitting down and consuming, they can't have the, the mask on. So by requiring them to come in with one, great. Maybe give them a little Ziploc bag or a container so they can put their mask in a safe uh, place. So when they leave, they still have a clean mask to, to wear when they go out in the public. Yeah, we have seen some seen some restaurants provide an envelope or something like that for exactly that purpose. And I think we have to remember that, you know, your average Texan is not familiar with kind of mask etiquette and how to, I mean, I know I sure wasn't right when this started, how to safely put it on and take it off without contaminating it, how many times, you know, when you need to clean it and how. And um, so I think masks are important, um, but so many of the other factors, again, going back to that, that inverse triangle, right? It's like the social distancing, the sanitation, those are so key and masks are not going to um, replace um, the effectiveness of those procedures. So we would certainly echo the state and the CDC's recommendation to wear face coverings as much as, as possible, but really emphasize the social distancing and the sanitation practices as well. And I, I wanted to jump in on that. I, I agree with that as well. I was just looking at the American Industrial Hygiene Association recommendations for restaurants that David highlighted and that will be available to you. And all they're saying is encouraging the use of face coverings, uh, masks, on entering and exiting the building. Because if you think about it, that's the point where you might be crossing other folks within close distance, depending on how you know wide the door is. And it makes sense right. to do it once you get to the table, you know, 
um, it's it's reasonable to expect that they're going to take them off as long as the tables are separated the right distance and that's what's emphasized as Kelsey was saying then it should be okay and I, I really do like the idea Shirag about providing a ziplock a clean bag I think that's an added element of attention and courtesy to the customers it's also very helpful yeah yeah George this is Dave. just to follow up on that something that needs to be considered is the travel from table to let's say bathroom or the travel from table to um, the um, you know, the salad bar, um, and so those travel uh, points need to be considered. I was in a very popular restaurant in uh, in Corpus, and I was very impressed with the way that they organized just movement of the patrons, and so just that flow of people through tables, uh, the pathways, all of that needs to be considered. That's absolutely right, and and that's often the the trickier parts, especially the entry and exit points. Um, and so, just making sure that you're you've got a system in place and that you have employees there to help, I think, is the other piece. Right? It's we need customers to be cooperative, but inevitably there are going to be things that pop up, and so just having an employee on hand who ideally is is designated and is visible as kind of a safety expert. Um, can really help, especially with that traffic flow situation. Actually, I'm going to follow up on something Dave just mentioned with, uh, and a question for both Kelsey and Chirag. So are uh, open salad bars being discouraged right now at this point in time? They're, yeah. Yes, they're prohibited right now. Any sort of buffet needs to be manned solely by employees and, and you need to have you know sneeze guards, barriers, that sort of thing. And that's exactly what I observed. Um, you go and you stand and you tell the worker what you want on your plate from the salad bar. And so yeah, so instead of a buffet where you can do your self-service, it mm -hmm. almost becomes like a cafeteria style that you may exactly. still go through the line, but have the employee behind in the kitchen area serve mm -hmm. that to your plate. Mm -hmm. Kind of made me a little upset. I was not able to load up my plate like I typically uh, do. So, hey, this is Bob. I, one of the things that we've uh, experienced is um, in providing assistance to individuals to essentially do engineering controls, going back to Janelle's presentation, the notion of removing uh, certain tables or removing chairs to essentially design in the, the social distancing, uh, what we're seeing is that uh, given space limitations, these uh, this um, furniture is stacked up uh, and it is blocking fire exits. Oh. So that's, that's something I would just encourage you through your um, professional organization to um, be conscious of that. I, I understand the, the, the challenges, but in, in our case here at the university, we have these common areas and, and we're removing tables and chairs, but they stack them all up and now they're in front of the fire exit. So um, we have to think about that piece there. So I, Kelsey, I would, I don't know if you've encountered this or. Uh, I haven't, no. I mean, I know there are certainly spatial challenges, right? Restaurants weren't designed for six feet between all the tables and that sort of thing, especially I think, you know, 
unfortunately, the the sort of trend, if you will, has been more intimate dining spaces, right? That's kind of been what people want, which is hardest to, to adapt to a, a COVID environment. Um, but I haven't heard of blocked fire exits. That's definitely, definitely a problem. And um, yeah, restaurants definitely need to be thoughtful about and mitigating all of all of the hazards and and the normal rule book doesn't go out the window because we have to deal with COVID too. So right, right. Well, I, I, I'm just sharing with you that that's what inadvertently that's what we experienced here at the university, and I'm hearing from some colleagues. Uh, so we just need to be thoughtful about that. As, as Absolutely. And I think another consideration that's really on the onus of of the patron, and I thought about it when Sharad was talking about removal of face masks at the table when you're eating. You know, if, if you're like Bob and you're eager to get out to a restaurant and, and maybe you're going to bring your household with you, you know, there's not a whole lot of information out there about mitigating household transmission. So maybe you're going to be sitting at a table at a restaurant with people you've been sitting at in your home at the kitchen table. But if you're planning for this to be a social outing where you're meeting with people who you haven't seen in a while or it's more people outside of your household, then I do think that becomes more of a risk um, in terms of transmission dynamics during this pandemic and meeting at a restaurant. So that's something that's really on the customer though, for who they choose to dine with, but it could be a consideration for all of us as we as we thinking about getting out of our homes and, and doing more activities, maybe going to a restaurant, and I welcome any thoughts, maybe going to a restaurant to um, as a social event for people outside of your home when you know you're going to be sitting at a table removing your face covering maybe that's not the optimal situation maybe maybe meeting at the park for a walk is a better option i welcome any comments on that well and, and i think it, it goes back to risk reduction right particularly i mean that's where you've got to be screening carefully and you've got to think about your risk factors and the risk factors of your family you know is someone at a heightened risk of contracting and having a negative reaction to covid um and and as you said that's really the customer has that information and has to make um smart judgment calls there and then of course we do have um limitations no more than six people at a table so that also kind of helps um curb some of that right there was yeah, a the customers will have to maybe uh, a little more graceful if you will so <laughs> that's important too at this time right uh, people expect the restaurants to do this and do that and do that but this is a tough time for the industry and uh, customers need to be a little more graceful and comply with uh, all the protocols and procedures that are put in place. Because you can't just say, customer is always right. <laughs> However, that may be a good cliche. They, they need to be a little more extra graceful. Uh, so there was a, a follow-up question, Kelsey, to to your your list of I think it was your the screening questions to put to mm. post at the restaurant, post on the website, and the question was where where's a good uh, reference website we can go to to look for those screening questions? Yeah, so um, the Texas Restaurant Association has a whole resources page, and actually I think it was in David's slide. Um, and from there, you can access the Texas Restaurant Promise, which has, we actually created an employee health screening um, that's a simple yes, no checklist that customers could also follow as well. It's, it's not really specific to employees. 
Um, and we also included within that the parameters about if you do have symptoms um, or if you do get tested and, and test positive, how long you need to wait to return to work or to, to social life, right? Um, so I would definitely encourage everyone to, to visit that website and, and it's publicly available. Member, non-member, member of the public, anyone can access that information. And we do regularly update it um, you know, anytime the state updates their minimum statewide health protocols to make sure that they're um, aligned. A couple of questions that came in about, okay, you've, you've implemented all these, these wonderful things at the restaurant, but you have a customer that just says, you don't have the right to tell me what I'm gonna do or what I'm not gonna do. What is your right as the restaurant in telling that person they need to leave or no, you have to wear the mask or whatever, the, whatever your protocol is? What are, what are your legal rights to, uh, as to how to enforce that procedure? Yeah, we, we get that question a lot, and it's certainly a concern for restaurants, especially, you know, tragically, we've seen instances across the country where customers do get belligerent and, and even potentially violent. It's certainly not the norm, but um, I know it's on people's mind and, and for good reason. Um, restaurants absolutely have every right to refuse, to refuse service to someone who is not complying with the health and safety mandates. Um, in terms of handling that interaction, I would just say, you know, please make sure your staff are trained in advance on exactly what the protocols are and on how to handle difficult customers. Um, you know, make sure you're applying your protocols consistently so that there's no allegation of discrimination or any issues like that. Um, and if you truly have someone who becomes belligerent and refuses to leave, um, at that point, you need to call the police. And I know that sounds extreme, but, um, you know, you need to, to take reasonable steps to protect yourself, to protect your employees, and protect your, your customers. And Shrog, I'd love to hear if you have other thoughts on that that, that I've missed. No, it's I a think it's, it's probably, no, no, and I think, uh, and you, you handle it perfectly. I would add on to something that I shared with you earlier about the screening and your protocols. Share the information, communicate with your guests and people that are going to be coming into your facility and let them know that this is what is expected. Something similar to what you just said. Your promise to you as an employee or an employer and you as a customer, right? There's got to be a point that people say, okay, this is the protocol, I better follow up. If not, I go to the next door and they're not requiring me to do this, this, this. And yeah, kick them out. Call the cops. Every convenience store I've ever been in, in my life says no shirt, no service. And you still see them inside sometimes. <laughs> I remember I saw them at Bucky's. But philosophically, that's I think where we're that's, yeah, there. That's exactly right. <laughs> So on the on the flip side of that, a question was written: As a customer, what do I do if I go to a restaurant that is obviously not in compliance with these with the executive order or the recommendations? What 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 should I do? Who can I tell? How do I report that restaurant? So it's generally the look. Oh, go ahead, Sharag. <laughs> I would I would say, hey, if you don't like it, talk to the manager right? 
But nowadays, you know, social media being so prevalent, right? People are going to post on Instagram and Twitter and this and that, and they're going to start shaming you. Work with them. Ask them questions. Hey, manager, why are you not doing this? Oh, because we don't have our risk level so high because we only serve packaged food. Oh, that makes sense. And maybe the customer will understand that, okay, this is the reason why they don't do this, X, Y, Z, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I think, um, and we have in the Texas Restaurant Promise, if you're a customer with question, please please do ask for a manager um, because we're all learning and we're all growing through this process. Um, and sometimes, you know, I think potentially, unfortunately, um, we kind of fixate on certain things like masks, right? Masks become popular and we all think that they're kind of the, the salvo, um, even though they're not. And so there's, there's an element sometimes of education there that's important. Um, but if they're truly, well, so a couple other things. One, vote with your feet and your wallet. Don't go back to a restaurant. Um, don't encourage your friends and family to go to a restaurant if if you truly feel like they're, um, you know, not keeping people safe. Um, and then local health departments and TABC also have authority to step in when there are health and safety um, concerns. Um, but we, you know. As the association, we're also always monitoring the situation and trying to intervene when we can and really educate and bring people into compliance. Because the truth is, restaurants, um, you know, we have every in, every um, everything at stake in getting this right. Right, customers are not going to return and and give us their business if they don't feel safe. And so, I think um, restaurants have every reason in the world to take this seriously and that 99% if not more are are taking every step they can to to do that. There was a question about returning restaurant employees to work and I and I think it probably applies across every industry in the in the country but specifically for for what we're talking about the restaurant employees that have been away from work for 2 months let's say what is the role of testing uh, either antibody testing or, or the nasal swab testing to confirm they're not sick before they go back to serving customers. Okay, let me take that one. So at present, uh, it's unclear what role, if any, employer um, requested testing has. Um, you know, we, we know that there are different types of tests. The The one that you get you know, through your nose, it's called the PCR test. That's the one to diagnose somebody with an active infection. And uh, that's usually done uh, on a physician's order or other healthcare provider. There's been a lot of talk about antibody tests and a lot of um, excitement about antibody tests for use uh, in a number of settings, including uh, to determine return to work or eligibility to work. Um, the thing is that the jury's still out on that. Um, so antibody tests do have a role when um, you use them to to measure what's called community prevalence. That means I go into whatever, Fort Bend County, and I want to get an idea of how many people have had the COVID infection. Either they have it now or they had it before. And antibody tests can serve for that purpose. You have to design it, it has to be done, uh, 
you know, very carefully because you can't test absolutely everybody. So you have to take like random samples that are representative of the people of Harris County. But it's just to get an idea at the community level of what percent of this county population has had it. What is less clear, but will become clear, is how, how should the antibody test be used in individual people and for what purpose? So where we are right now, uh, and, and there's more and more information coming out every day, including from CDC, there's a lot of folks that are doing antibody tests. We are doing antibody tests at UT Health as part of a research project to answer that very question. So we do know that people have had the infection at some point about one to three weeks after the onset of the infection begin to develop antibodies. An antibody is something that our bodies generate in response to an infection. That's different from the nasal swab test where what we're testing is the virus, the presence of the virus itself, okay? So antibody tests tell us the response of the body. And so one to three weeks after the uh, infection has started, those antibody test uh, uh, levels tend to appear and they tend to rise. For many diseases, we know that that is synonymous with being immune. For example, with measles, once you have an antibody response to measles, you have it for life. But for other diseases, we know that there is some immunity, but it doesn't last for life. For, for example, the flu vaccine that we get, the reason we get it every year is because it protects us that year but then the immunity wanes because the virus changes or, or whatever. With COVID, the COVID infections, we don't know, we do know the amount of response, that you will detect it, but we don't know if it means that there is immunity. And if it does mean that there is immunity, we don't know how long that immunity is going to last. There's more and more information coming out that suggests that yes, in fact, you do have a certain level of immunity after you've had the COVID infection. We don't know how long it lasts. Now we have to add a third uh, wrench into the into the um, into the mix, and that's that there are many antibody tests out there that are not very good. We've heard about this on TV. The FDA, uh, because they were pressured for time, understandably issued what was called an emergency use authorization. Normally, FDA has to approve vaccine, uh, um, antibody tests, any t any medical test. And they do it only after very rigorous testing and validation. But when there's a pandemic emergency, there is reason sometimes to loosen those standards and allow people to take things to market companies and then provide their own data. And, and they did that. And But now they're tightening down on that because many of the antibody tests that are commercially available are not only not good, they are dangerous. And by, what I mean by dangerous is they give you false results, either a false positive result meaning, hey, I have antibodies, therefore I'm protected. Well, that's an assumption that hasn't been proven. And if you you as an employer take somebody, require that of, a, of an individual who has had that antibody, and it's a false positive, and you expose them to uh, somebody with infection, they're not protected. And, and conversely, false negatives have their problems as well. Uh, just yesterday, uh, there was a report, I can't remember if I read it in the paper or if it was out of CDC, cautioning that many of the ongoing antibody tests are showing a lot of false positives. <laughs> so, bottom line, it's a long-winded explanation, but I think the time has not yet arrived for employers to be considering the use of antibody testing to determine return-to-work status of an employee. That's very helpful. Thank you.
Thank you, George. Um, this was a question about symptoms, and so maybe George can answer, help answer this one. It's a two-part question, but you know, with with more and more evidence showing that people can have this virus and not have any symptoms at all, um, the the two-part question is: number one, why do some people get a fever and, and other people do not? Are there different strains of this virus, or what's going what's going on in that aspect? And the second part is knowing all of this stuff about asymptomatic people and, and the, the vast range of symptoms, why do we still put so much uh, emphasis on taking people's temperatures? Uh, that, that's actually a great question um, because a temperature is useful when there's a fever. It's not <laughs> useful as, as useful when there's not a fever, okay? So, um, you know, it, it's funny when uh, we, we've been doing this since I was looking at uh, my emails the other day. We, I, start, I started being involved with some of the task forces in the medical center back on January 15th, which was six days before the first case was reported in the U.S. And it's interesting to look over and see how, how much we've learned about how this virus and this infection actually presents. Initially, we were very, very strict. We required a fever in order to test somebody. And we required that there be a cough and or shortness of breath. And that was it. And now, as we've learned more and more cases, we've seen we added loss of sense of smell. And the list of things that symptoms that have been associated with known COVID positive cases is very long. Um, I'm tracking for a hospital here in the medical center. We're, we're doing actually a very good job of all of our cases, tracking all of the symptoms to see which one is the most frequent. And it is not fever. It is cough in about 80% of cases. Fever is present in about 20 or something percent of cases. And then it goes down from there all the way down to diarrhea and fatigue and things like that that are less specific. Now, why is fever not appearing now? Well, there could be a number of reasons. One of them is that the fever passed before the test was done, or that by the time the test was done, the person was feeling so bad that they already popped a couple of ibuprofens and that was masking the fever. There could be a lot of reasons. So um, so yeah, fever is important when it's there, but we don't, nowadays our definition has changed completely. Uh, so, it, yeah. George, if I may weigh in on this one, because back to my single slide, this notion of the um, uh, what we know and not know about this novel virus, but back, to your point of what we're learning since January, one of the things that we were really focused on early on was travel history. And, and that changed dramatically when we had shown community-based transmission. And so now we don't even ask about travel history anymore because that's, that's so I, I just, I'd like to underscore that point that we're Kind of earn while you learn. So as, as we're going along and learning about this, the, these things are changing. So just to underscore your point there. That's right. And and just to follow up, the, so it is also true that there are many, we, we don't know how many. That's one of the reasons for doing antibody testing in community studies is to find out. We're really trying to find out how many people had the infection and didn't know it. In other words, they were either asymptomatic or they had some very mild symptoms that they just blew off and therefore never sought medical attention. Now that, it is useful for that. But, um, and there's good evidence to suggest that when you are asymptomatic but infected, um, you can be pretty contagious. I'll, I'll add too, from a practical perspective, I think this is really why we layer on the protective protocols, right? So this is why we require health screenings, 
and social distancing and enhance sanitation and disinfection, right? It's, it's, it's to kind of cover our bases as we learn more and more about this virus. Um, and as we know that some people are asymptomatic. Excellent. So, uh, Tom, Tommy, I, so Tommy, your question initially was about restaurant operator. How do they ascertain about an employee coming back to work, et cetera, right? And I right. think George gave us a good, good, thorough understanding on the testing protocol, et cetera. However, the food code and, and your local Texas uh, food rules require that you as a restaurant or a food establishment have an employee health policy. So the employee health policy typically included the major six illnesses and some key symptoms. And many of the restaurants and many of the operators are having to maybe modify it, kind of amend it a little bit, so that some of the COVID-19 related symptoms show up on their employee health screening or check. So by all means, add some of those specific symptoms in your employee health policy and include that employee demonstrate the ability to report that. I'll give you a perfect example. Some facilities will have a simple couple of questions come up when the employee come into work and clock in through the system. So this new question could easily say, are you experiencing any cough or any fever over 100.4? And if the employee during the clock-in period indicates yes, automatically a red flag goes up and the manager says, Chirag, you just answered yes. You need to go home. You don't need to be working in my restaurant today. Simple. Very simple thing that the employer or the manager can do to make sure that the employees that are coming in to, to prepare, serve food items are symptom-free? That's, that's an excellent point, and I'll follow up with, with a follow-up question. Uh, in, in that same regard, in the, 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 the writer of this question said, um, this is true across all industry, but specific to restaurant workers, um, sometimes there's a culture of, I, I need to go to work regardless if I'm sick or not. And, uh, you know, especially if I'm an hourly worker and that's how I put food on my own table, I gotta go to work. So is there anything that the, the, you know, the restaurant industry is doing to change that mindset, change that culture, to reemphasize to these workers, if you are sick, we really need you to stay home? Yeah, it's, it's a great it's, question. Yeah, it's, it's very important. And you know, just uh, on the same story, a few years ago, I was listening to a, a seminar presentation at a conference and surprising answer to why do people employees in a food business come to work even though he or she is not well can you guess the number one reason they show up anybody duty sense of duty that's my guess the, the number one reason that was identified with about thousand people that were surveyed uh, is they don't want their coworkers to feel extra work because they're not there. Many times people would think automatically they want that money, they want that check. Surprisingly, the number one reason was they don't want to jeopardize their coworkers. 
So it's a compassionate uh, reason, right? But it is important for the manager and the assistant and the leaders to identify that, hey, no matter what, you can't come to work. And hopefully you modified your sick policies and the employee pay policy to allow that employee to stay home and not jeopardize hundreds of other people. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, we have to remember this is a service industry, right? And so I'm not at all surprised to hear that survey result because these are people who whose career and whose job is to take care of other people. So that's what they think about. And I think we just need to emphasize and create a culture where um, the way you do that is by staying home and, and being forthright when you do have symptoms and concerns about COVID. Very nice. Looks like we're at our 14 minute mark. So I've got a handful of questions. So let's just power through them. Um, referencing the, the COVID tracker application, is there any piece in that app that notifies the employer or has a data sharing uh, option? I'm, I'm going to let uh, Janelle answer that because she actually fills out her own symptoms and she's more familiar with it. I but I would be extremely surprised. No, no, it, it doesn't. No, do that. <laughs> no, it the, no. Um, so it is de-identified, and that that data goes uh, straight to a, a very secure uh, database. Um, there's no way for the employer to access that. Um, you employers. At some point, we'll be able to receive, and this isn't my project, so I'm, I'm speaking a little bit out of my lane, but I do participate in the study as a participant, and I do put my symptoms in there. Um, and it's really easy. And But at some point, we will have that data, and employers will be able to reference what it looks like in a certain geographic area, whether that's a zip code or a county or something smaller. I, I'm not sure of that. Um, but it's it's a really this symptom tracker. It takes I don't know half a minute, 30 seconds to complete, and it's really nice because it aggregates all of the symptoms uh, in in the state of Texas. Actually, it's nationwide, but it's really nice. So if, if folks can participate in um, the study, just download the tracker. It reminds you every day, and really, it takes about 20 seconds um, most days. It, it asks two questions: uh, How are you? Yeah. yeah, and so so that's the symptom tracker. But remember, you don't have to wait for that analysis to be done. I mean, there is a very good county level information already available uh, through this uh, State Department of the, the Department of State Health Services. Also, the the Johns Hopkins University um, uh, map that I think we're all familiar with because it shows up on every news show, and we have the, re the link for you you can go down to the county level on a day-by-day -day basis. So it may not be in your zip code, but at least you have information about your county and which way things are headed. But encourage employers to stay on top of your local numbers. It's important. There was a follow-up question on, on a fever and what constitutes a, a, a temperature reading of a fever. And the, uh, the answer was 100.4, not 104. So I think that's what Sharag would had mentioned. So 100.4 or higher would be a temperature and and probably correct. send that employee home. That's correct. Although uh, some uh, at some places they're using 
they're erring on the side of greater caution and using lower cutoffs. So you will see 100.1 or even 100 in some places. And I saw one that was doing it at 99.5, which personally I don't agree with because you're going to miss, I mean, you're going to over, over diagnose uh, fever. Um, but some places are using lower. I know in the medical center we're using 100.1, not 100.4. Yeah, the, the governor's or DSHS's protocols have 100.0, so that's what we're asking restaurants to, to follow. And, you know, one of the other things that people need to consider if they are using the temperature screening is, uh, you know, it's 92 plus in Houston, right? So if the employee has just recently come to work uh, out in the open, and waited in the parking lot for a little bit and comes in and you check the temperature and it shows up at 100 plus, chances are it's because of the weather outside. So give it a couple of minute rest and then check it. I'm not a medical professional, but this is something I've heard. So I wanted to make sure that I share that with people. And if they're running late, they'll probably run into the place, right? So that's... <laughs> Um, are indoor air surveys useful in the process of a restaurant reopening, specifically flow and recirculation studies? Come on, Bob, that's your cue. <laughs> <laughs> Works better when you're on I'm sorry, I was muted. Um, so, um, at a minimum, we'd like to make sure that the organizations confirm that they're getting air throughput. In other words, not just recirculating air within the uh, facility, but rather getting uh, fresh air makeup uh, coming in there. Um, and so this is a conversation we've had a lot. And uh, from, based on some certain work that we've done recently, uh, this is just Bob's opinion, and I welcome my other colleagues, but the notion of assessing if you have perhaps four to six air changes per hour, but let me, let me make sure we, uh, we're clear on this, four to six air changes per hour, that means outside air coming in, not recirculating the air in the room the six times. Uh, we, we've done some work focused on our uh, clinics, uh, our, our outpatient clinics on this exact issue. So I, I can point to references that will uh, endorse that recommendation with regard to clinics where aerosol producing uh, activities may occur, uh, but I cannot point to a reference that says perhaps you should do that in a restaurant. And, and the reason I bring this up is that we're in a pandemic mode. And if you think about it philosophically, and I'll defer to George and others on this, um, that it just seems that it would be prudent to make sure you have the air, you know, air inflow and then outflow. And, and we certainly can point to references for four to six air changes per, per hour. George, would you agree with that? Uh, yes, and I'm actually looking at the American Industrial Hygiene Association document, and it that's the first thing it says is get fresh air to the customers and staff and properly utilize your ventilation system. Um, you can also achieve the same thing by encouraging outdoor dining um, and, and open doors and windows if anybody in, ever does that in July or August um, in Houston. If 
for example. <laughs> um, maintaining relative humidity at 40 to 60%, making sure that your bathrooms are at negative pressure. That means that air goes from the outside into the restroom, not from the inside of the restroom out to the general area. Mm -hmm. And um, consult your HVAC professional. That's why you pay for these contracts. Mm -hmm. um, it says consider using HEPA filters. As everybody, I don't know if everybody's familiar with what a HEPA filter is, but that is um, a filter that, that, that can sometimes fit inside uh, air conditioning systems. We also have HEPA masks, and they filter out 99.97% of small particles, less than, well, very, very, very small particles. Um, the, the downside to that is it will increase your energy costs for use of, of the ventilation. And then uh, finally, it does mention fans. So, so what Bob was talking about, you know, distinguish between recirculating air and ventilating. Um, if I take a room and I close it completely and I turn on an, a fan there, I'm recirculating air which is actually counterproductive because whatever is suspended in that air is going to stay suspended uh, mm -hmm. until the fan is turned off. It won't settle down to the ground. That's different from exchanging um, uh, old air with and replacing it with fresh air. So when you do have fans, this is good. Uh, it recommends that uh, to trying to minimize the air from the fans blowing from one person directly at another mm -hmm. individual. Um, and then, uh, so those are some additional tips that have to do with the air environment. And if I, I'll just jump ahead. Um, we've received a lot of questions with regard to, uh, in addition to filtration that George mentioned, um, inline UV light uh, treatment for ducts. And um, it, it turns out that this virus in particular is susceptible to exposure to UV light and hence, that's why it doesn't sustain itself outside very long. I think I think the the, uh, the last time I, I think it's two hours. So if, if someone, let's say, was contaminated and touched a doorknob, but it was outdoors, I think the estimate is that uh, two hours that the virus would be effective. So anyhow, there are in duct UV light systems that can be put in place so that when the air comes into a facility, doesn't have to be a restaurant, could be anything, uh, that the, the UV light could be used to address the virus. That's all fine. And in fact, some of you have probably been to a clinic in your lifetime where you've seen these things mounted on the wall that have a metal uh, box on them, but behind it is a, a UV light. And that's typically for the control of tuberculosis, that, that's why it's, it's there. Mm. But, but the reason I bring this up is just understand that those things have to be maintained. So putting inline UV light systems in ductwork is kind of like getting a puppy. You gotta walk it, you gotta worm it, you gotta all the all the stuff that goes along with it. And, and um, my experience has been some people will put systems in place, but then they don't do the maintenance piece. So just just for what it's worth. So I'll I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's, guys. A good, it's a good thing we're reaching the end because I don't think any of us can compete with comparing the the filtration system to a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, we've got three minutes left on our webinar, and we've got about five questions, six questions, so we're going to jump through these babies really quickly. Has there been any guidelines issued for border towns with employees or employers that deal with employees that live in Mexico but work in Texas? Any specific guidelines to those regions of restaurants? I have not. I have not seen any. I would check maybe the Department of State or maybe some entity like that 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 is specific on on international crossings. Okay. Uh, another question, and this may be for one of our PhDs in the room. Is there a role for PCR screening on surfaces or high traffic areas for this virus? Swabbing a, a countertop and testing it. That's a, that's a Christy question. There, well, there is a role for it, but I think during the pandemic, the, the best practice would be to mitigate the risk by removing it from the surface. and, and implementing those best protection practices that we talked about with, with proper disinfection. And there have been other studies published in the peer-reviewed literature looking at other coronaviruses and other viruses transmitted through the respiratory route that have swab services in various locations and use molecular methods like PCR. So that information is available. We know it's theoretically possible that those viruses will be on surfaces. You know, it's probably practically possible they will be. I think what's really important during the pandemic is to get them removed from services to mitigate exposure. All right. Uh, are there any guidelines for restaurants keeping track of customers' names in case there is an exposure at that restaurant and they need to supply that information for con uh, contact tracing? This has come up. Uh, the city of Austin um has recommended that certain small businesses including restaurants um try to keep a customer log um i would say that's an issue that just really needs to be thought through i know some restaurants are giving customers the option to leave their name and a phone number or email address behind um I know that some of the ones just anecdotally that are doing that are not seeing high rates of participation from customers. Um, I just don't think we've really gone about this in a, in a thoughtful way where customers know exactly what's being asked, why, how it's gonna be used, what the privacy protections are in place. Until we can really answer all of those questions, I would uh, recommend caution. Okay. So no specific guidelines. And, and I'll, I'll follow that up too with contact tracing is incredibly important and needs to be done on a consistent professional basis, right? I think we need to distinguish those two concepts because a restaurant keeping a customer log is very different from a trained public health professional performing contact tracing. And that's really where we think the focus needs to be. Okay. Well, we are right at the one o'clock so i'm going to be respectful of everybody's time i think we missed maybe two or three questions so we'll make sure we get those answered in writing to everybody uh, that attended today uh, thank you very much to our two guest panelists Chirag and kelso we appreciate your expertise thank you to our our regulars on these uh this series of uh of webinars so we hope to see everybody uh back next time george what's our next webinar we have coming up next week is construction and manufacturing construction and manufacturing. And I know we have two uh, very good experts on that panel as well. So we hope to see you all back then.